0: Hello, hello, hello. Once again, this is Chris Snowden. You're watching The Swift Half with Snowden. Thank you for joining me. Uh, As you probably know, if you watched before, this is just a half hour chat show. And as we only have 30 minutes, I'm going to get straight into it because I'm very keen to speak to my guest today as uh, as, 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 get as much out of him as possible. He is Edward Chancellor, who has written the fantastic book, The Price of Time, um, which is a, a history of interest rates and um far more exciting than than it sounds the book of the year if not possibly the decade i would argue um certainly very much worth reading edward hello thanks for joining us
1: yeah well peace be with you
0: now perhaps you can start off by um, maybe not summarizing the book but uh, just explaining um the importance of interest rates and uh, and what they've done down the years
1: um well i i see it really as interest rather than interest rates, interest right. being a, a charge on, um, well, as I it's a charge on time, the, the price mm. of the time. And um, as I outline in the book, interest is probably the oldest financial institution known to man. It, it predates uh, cash money, coinage, by at least two millennia. And there's evidence, uh, from language, from the etymologies of the ancient languages, that interest uh, was probably charged even in prehistoric periods uh, by uh, by by farmers uh, lending cattle and grain to each other and charge and 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 making a charge uh, on that uh, because the, if you look at the origins of the words, um, they tend to relate of the word interest it tends to relate to the offspring of livestock, of, of calves and, and kid goats and the like. And um, then if you look in ancient Mesopotamia, you um, you find uh, where the first cities appeared, you find interest being used uh, on loans and that those loans were used um, as we do today to buy houses, to finance uh, businesses, at uh, local light industry, but also commercial uh, voyages. And what's interesting here is that we see that not only is interest serving its function as a discount rate on the valuation property, but also it, higher interest rates were charged on risky loans. So you can see that interest incorporates a price of, of, of risk. And as I elaborate uh, in the book, uh, interest is the sort of central Pricing mechanism of a capitalist system. Uh, it, 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 it is the, uh, the capitalization or discount rate at which all, all, all assets, whether stocks, bonds, or real estate, you name it, are, are, are valued. It, it's, also, uh, the rate, um, it's also the rate, it's also the hurdle rate or payback period, as we often call it, uh, that determines the allocation of capital what type of investments we make it is a um it is a um sometimes referred to as in the 19th century as a reward for saving or <laughs> as a uh, a reward for abstinence so interest determines the amount of money that is that is saved uh, but it's the price of leverage so it's also determines how much is borrowed in an international context interest determines how capital flows, how capital, international capital flows. Uh, in, when the core of the financial system, whether Britain in the 19th century or the US in the 20th and 21st century, when interest rates are low there, you tend to have international capital flows growing uh, into the periphery in the rest of the world where interest rates are, are rising. And, and then last but not least, interest as we all know, is supposed at least uh, to be a lever to control inflation. And the thrust of the book really is that modern economists and in particular, monetary policy makers have only focused their attention on that last function of interest, the the lever to control inflation. And yet they've ignored all the other functions. And because they've ignored all the other functions, We have um, a whole host of problems in the world, which I outline in the book, Um, and I think, really, and this is a thought that perhaps is not quite in the book because of the events that happened over the course of this year, what we're seeing now is that because of all these other problems have occurred during the period of ultra-low interest rates, the central banks can't even really use the lever (laughs) to control inflation without bringing the entire system down. we've got ourselves into a remarkably difficult position because we have ignored or failed to understand the multiple functions of interest. As my friend Jim Grant, the financial historian and journalist says, interest is the universal price. It is, so to speak, the the coping stone in the architecture of of, 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 of a market economy but it, it also exists that you it exists in all places at all times i mean i, I at one stage i cite a history of, of of the soviet economy where the uh the economist Janos konai argues that one of the reasons the soviet economy failed is because they didn't really have a formal interest rate to actually alloc- determine the allocation of capital so part of the failure of of communism was actually the failure to have a mechanism, a universal price to determine the allocation of capital.
0: So the reason that we're in this sort of trap now in which central bankers are very reluctant to put up interest rates, even though we have double digit inflation, is because it's gonna harm people who've got mortgages, it's gonna harm governments because they're gonna have higher debt repayments, it's gonna harm what you call zombie companies or lots of companies, in fact, any any company that's in debt. And we've got to the position, you you argue, that everyone is so indebted and they're already at the limits of what they can pay back that if you have interest rates go back to any kind of normal level, suddenly you've got a huge recession, depression.
1: Yeah, I mean, in Britain, people will understand it pretty clearly in reference to the housing market because as you know, that's all the Brits really care about. And um, over, I mean, say, you know, in this period of very low interest rates that we've just been through, I mean, frankly, it's lasted for 25 years, um, but the rates came lower and lower. um, People, housing valuations relative to household incomes climbed higher and higher. And that seems sustainable if you could get onto the housing ladder. Needed you needed an upfront uh, cash deposit, but if you could get onto the housing ladder, um, actually interest payments, mortgage payments, as a share of household income, in recent years have been near record lows. And and you know at the end of last year, uh, it you you could borrow at a two percent uh, mortgage rate to, to, to buy a house, uh, and people tend to 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 pay in their mortgage about 20% of their income, 20 to 30% of their income in mortgage payments. The trouble is, and this is what we saw in September, is that when the market quickly reprices the, the mortgage rate, as the Bank as a bank of England was raising interest rates, it was looking, we were looking at next year at a 6% mortgage rate. Now, if you, if you borrowed 30% of your income at 2%, you can see that resetting your mortgage to, a, to 6% is actually a no-no, but the 6% more bank rate, not, not a mortgage rate, the, the Bank of England's policy rate, the 6% is the average post-war, yeah. uh, is the post-war average. Now, so you can see quite clearly, just in that simple example, that the um, that the resetting interest rates to a normal level would completely crash the UK housing market. And one one anal- analyst I read the other day um, was pointing out that a that because mortgages mortgages are so much larger relative to income today than in the early 1980s, a mortgage rate of 14% in um, in 1980. Would, would be the equivalent today, in terms of, of payments from household income, of a 3% mortgage rate. So you can yeah. see that that embedded leverage has made the work, just UK housing, immensely more susceptible And that, that. And you can say that the same is also true of government finance with, with you know, the Bank of England owns roughly 850 billion of, of, of gilts of government debt, and it actually receives the income on, on those guilt that it owns. But last year, the bank was only charging, in effect, the government uh, by paying interest on, on, on the on reserves, it's called on, on the money it issued to buy these bonds. It was only charging 10 basis points. So the cost of government funding came down immensely. But if you but the bank, you probably saw the bank of uh, the, the House of Lords report last year called Quantitative Easing a dangerous addiction, which point, in which one of the members being Mervyn King, the former Bank of England governor, governor, he pointed out that a one percentage point, increase in bank rate and long-term rates would be equivalent now to an increase in the cost of government debt servicing by 1% of GDP. So you can see how difficult it is to raise rates. And we've got, you know, not so much true of the UK stock market, because UK stocks been pretty battered, battered in recent years. Uh, But you see the same in in the valuation of, of US financial assets in stock market, which at the end of last year, was trading at the highest valuation levels in history, except for the brief period at the end of the dot com bubble. And now this year, the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates now currently Fed funds rate at about 3.75% target to 4% target. And now you see US stock market coming down very sharply in response to a, um, a relatively small, in absolute terms, level of interest. Now, then, then go back to England and think about the bond market. So what was fascinating, and I think this will be studied for, you know, in, in financial history books in years to come, is the crash in the gilts market that occurred in September, um, you saw these long-dated so-called linkers, uh, index-linked bonds, 50-year index-linked bonds, falling in value by 85%. These are are gilts, they're called gilts because they're they're gilt-edged securities. They're meant to be as safe as houses, so to speak. And yet these bonds fell by 85% as the Bank of England raised interest rates to its bank rate to 2.25%, which is roughly just a tiny bit more than one third of the post-war average bank rate. And that's enough to bring down 85% of the value of a long dated guild. Now, another thing that's very interesting relates back to what I mentioned of interest being the price for risk. And when risk, what I argue is that when interest rates are very low, risk becomes mispriced. And also, uh, investors will take extra risk in order to boost their income. And what it turns out is that the British pension funds, as you know, uh, in order to, I mean, it's a bit complicated, but in order to match their current assets to their long dated payments, had gone into the uh, derivatives market and acquired these long dated gilts with derivatives. And as those gilts collapsed, they then, um, they then had cash calls and was then starting to have to sell off all their other assets. And there was a risk of the financial system freezing up. So um, as I, one of the arguments of the book is that the interest, that the very low interest rates are building up Uh, and have created an extraordinary financial fragility. And what we're seeing now is that fragility coming to the fore. And to my mind, the gilts crash is a bit similar to the problems that began to appear with mortgage subprime finance in the summer of 2007. And when, I I don't know if you remember, but that was the time when uh, Bear Stearns, the US, the late US investment bank, was running a couple of um, hedge funds that invested in, in subprime mortgage-backed securities. And over in, um, in Europe, I think it was uh, BNP Paribas or one of the large French banks, uh, had a money market fund also invested in, in subprime securities. And that also suffered losses. And then we had these problems in the interbank market. Now, at the time, people who didn't really understand about the credit boom and subprime finance and the problems of securitized finance didn't really clock how serious the problem was. Uh, if you were following these stories, then you if you actually knew what was going on in subprime and the problems of securitized finance, you knew that the Bear Stearns hedge fund was a massive sort of warning sign. And to me, the, the gilts, I mean, I may be wrong, uh, but given my thesis and the validation of my thesis from the sort of gilts crash, to me to my mind this is not a, a one-off event but a really uh, a, an early warning call yeah. or you could see it in terms of say the european sovereign debt crisis when the greek problems uh, problems with greek debt started to appear in, i think you know late 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 2009 perhaps a bit earlier and it was only after a period of months and and perhaps years, that that then sort of metastasized into a a wider Eurozone sovereign debt crisis.
0: And you do mention the pension issue in in the book. It's a remarkably prescient book in in so many ways. And of course it ends quite tantalizingly in sort of mid 2021, just as the chickens are, are coming home to roost. So wait,
1: what? could I just say, I mean, I, I was just talking to a colleague of mine, that the last chapter I talk the, in the last paragraph, I talk about the crypt, crypto, I, I make this argument that one day we're going to have to return to a find a system in which in which interest rates are priced by the are priced in a market rather than set by central bankers. I mean, if we think that the Soviet Union didn't, you know, didn't work because central planning didn't work, well, it doesn't, you know, our, a capitalist system with central planners running the central bank trying to uh, you know to to um, gather all the information about working a financial system um, and, and setting an interest rate is it, not really going to work and I say, well, one you know some people are touting <laughs> cryptocurrencies as an alternative currency, and I mentioned that 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 um, that these cryptocurrencies seem to be sort of uh, the crypto uh, lenders and and exchanges seem to be sort of Ponzi schemes because they're offering very high rates. And what we're seeing this week is that you know that one of the largest crypto exchanges, I think it's called FTX, has been yep. has, has clapped and, and and now looks, I'm not certain, as if a certain you know uh, as if sort of certain amount of frauds there. And that that links all, also to the rates of very low interest rates because. Yeah cite somewhere, you know, do you remember J.K. Galbraith's famous comment in the nineteen in his book on the nineteen twenty nine crash that during booms you get what he calls the bezel, an illusory increase in wealth, or in fact embezzlement that takes place during the boom. And I think that uh, and and Galbraith doesn't link this to in a way anything wrong in the monetary system. He he's a Keynesian and Keynesians on the whole don't, to my mind, have a sort of deep interest in what interest does, so they they don't really understand it. But anyhow, you take the concept of the bezel um, and put it through, you know, from my prism, um, then you see that actually the bezel is likely to grow, most likely to grow at a time when interest rates are very low.
0: Yeah, and you, you mentioned the various cryptocurrencies as examples of the kind of investments people make when they can't get much return from, from other things, you know. Um, what, where, so what do you think is going to happen next? Because it doesn't seem to me like many lessons have been learned. Uh, it seems that, you know, even the enormous amount of money printing during COVID is being dismissed and the inflation we're seeing is just being blamed on the, you know, sanctions on on Russia and supply side problems. I, mean, I, see, I have a feeling that, the Bank of England and other central bankers are just gonna try and get the show back on the road. And as soon as there's a sign of recovery or inflation coming down, they're gonna just you know, reduce interest rates again, maybe do some more quantitative easing. Is that what you think is gonna happen or do you think there will be a reckoning now?
1: Well, I mean, I think, that, I think that's what the central banks think, or at least that's what they say in public, uh, that interest, I mean, they obviously got it wrong Uh, a couple of years ago when they said, you know, interest rates are going to remain lower for longer, then a bit of inflation came along, and they said uh, that the interest rate was going to be uh, a temporary, uh, inflation was going to be a temporary phenomenon. Um, And we won't get into the whole argument of what, of of why inflationary forces might be, uh, have taken a profound turn in the last few years, and that therefore the disinflation or the low inflation we've seen at the last 25 years may is probably gone, but the what 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 I think that that what has changed is that um, the central bankers are beginning to realize that the point we've just been talking about that as you raise rates from very low levels, you are uncovering this financial fragility. Uh, Now, what the Bank of England does doesn't really matter. What the Federal Reserve does, because the US, is the, you know, the US dollar is the linchpin of the global financial system. The Fed is, is, is much the most important actor in this field. And the Fed at the moment is raising interest rates to control inflation, but also to sort of get back its credibility. Uh, the danger is that if they continue to hike, and, and some people thinking that Fed funds rates going up to 6% next year, they continue to hike, they w- that more of these sort of gilts, crashes type type events emerge in the system. So you could move. In fact, if you if you if you un- if the central banks unwittingly induce a, a financial crash, you could move actually from from uh, from inflation to deflation it, almost on the, uh, you know, spinning round um, in a in, in, in very short period of time. The danger, and we don't know actions that have yet to take place, danger is that central banks then do return to more and more quantitative easing or whatever you want to call it, um, by basically trying to calm the financial markets by buying securities, and the danger is then they have to issue more money, and the and the confidence in currency starts to collapse. And that's not you know that's not my view. And there's, uh, there's uh, last week um, uh, an investment letter was written by uh, Paul Singer, who's one of the most successful U.S. hedge fund managers, and he envisaged a world in which you know central banks uh, can't can't stop themselves from printing money to support the financial system, and that in the end leads uh, Singer to a hyperinflation. Now, I, you know, we, we, as I say, we can't, we can't, we don't know what lies in the future. Nothing, in fact, is inevitable. Uh, but go back to the book. I, I have a chapter on, do you remember, on John Law and the Mississippi Bubble, and I argue that Law, who, who. Created, you know, introduced the first fiat money paper currency uh, in Europe in, in, in France in, in 1719. How he lowered interest rates, flooded France with his paper money, initially had an asset price boom, like the one we've seen in recent years. And then inflation came, and law had to then choose between pursuing the continued policy of inflation uh, by continuing to put money into the system or to take a deflationary route um, and, and, and withdrawing the money from circulation. And in the end, Law actually chose to withdraw the money from circulation, which caused a, a crash, and, and in the end, the collapse of his monetary experiment. So I think we are on the point where you know, the central banks have to choose between inflation and deflation, and my hunch, my hunch, is that they will go down the inflationary route, um, not least because governments, <laughs> governments uh, you know, won't want to be uh, you know, left paying very high interest rates
0: on their right. debt. And also, it feels to me as if people sense that I inflation is the stealthiest of stealth taxes and people kind of accept even now when inflation is over 10 percent, people it's kind of in the background in a lot of the economic discussions, whereas if there's any talk of putting up interest rates by half percent, suddenly you get all the the mortgage holders saying this is outrageous. I'm going to be paying another three hundred pounds. So I suspect you're right that they will stick with the inflation because people seem to notice it less and accept it more as a kind of law of nature rather than something that's been the result of policy.
1: Yeah, do you remember? So at the beginning of the book, I referred to uh, this, you know, this figure called the so-called Forgotten Man. Uh, sort of in uh, um, an idea created by a 19th century American writer, um, I can't remember his first name, Sumner. And so the forgotten man is the person who sort of suffers in silence from policies because mm. he's not represented. In a way, uh, my book is in a way the, the forgotten man or People or families, households who suffered from the low interest rate policies, and these were, you know, the young, <laughs> the workers facing low productivity, people who didn't have financial assets
0: and savers, uh, of course, savers, but savers. You know, nobody ever talks about the savers when interest they, rates they, go up.
1: They're the they're the forgotten men. Now, move into an inflationary era, then you get a whole load of other people also who um, are, you know, who, who who suffer from inflation and and. The people who benefit from the low interest rates, or whether they're low in, in in nominal terms or low in real terms in during an inflation period, the people who benefit from the low interest rates, whether they're governments or 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 home buyers or banks or financial entities, they're the ones who 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 get their complaints on the front page of the newspaper. And and I, I think I, I mentioned somewhere that see, you remember um the Turkish president uh Erdogan complains about what he calls the interest rate lobby in Turkey, pushing for higher rates. all the time. I say if, if an interest rate lobby existed, it's always been one for much lower rates and Erdogan himself was its chief representative.
0: Yeah, right. Your book's been uh, generally very well reviewed, although I, I noticed that Martin Wolf of the FT wasn't so keen. I suppose he's a kind of a standard bearer for this new orthodoxy. One of the accusations he lays at your door is that you're a, basically a liquidationist and that the only alternative to the status quo of low interest rates in QE is a depression and therefore you're in favour of, of a depression. How would you respond?
1: I mean, you know, I I'm, mean, I'm inc- I incline more towards the economics of friedrich hayek and 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 martin wolf inclines more towards those of, of Keynes and 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 you know they, hayek was accused of being a liquidationist in the 1930s the point is if an economy is far away from equilibrium then one has to find some way of moving it back to equilibrium even if that means that businesses that have engaged in, if you will, disequilibrium activities, for want of a better way, I mean, let's call them zombie companies, or let's call them sort of pie in the sky, venture capital businesses, or let's call them crypto exchanges. These businesses are a symptom of the disequilibrium. And in order to get back to a state of equilibrium, there is no choice that capital and labor must be reallocated. Now, you know, call that liquidation, if you will. The alternative, and of course, this is why Martin Wolf didn't like my book, is to move further and further away from, from equilibrium, which is yeah. what we've done since the 2008 financial crisis. Now, of course, <laughs> why the central bankers went to address my book and why Wolf won't like it is that in the end if my analysis is correct those who pursued and those who've advocated such policies over the last 13 years will in the end be held responsible for the problems that emerge so so uh, you know, so there we are that, that's a difference agreement. Uh, i think you know wolf pointedly doesn't mention what i well first of all he doesn't mention any of the problems that i that I elaborate on the causes, on the product, on the outcomes and consequences of these ultra rates. But I, I specifically, towards the end of the book, have a description of what happened in Iceland. And the Icelanders, after the global financial crisis, where they'd been the most you know, uh, irresponsible of all countries in the world, building up massive foreign debts, massive mortgages, so on and so forth, they actually were sort of hung out dry um, And they liquidated, if you will, they liquidated their banks, they liquidated and defaulted on their international debts. Okay, so so that wasn't a nice position to be in if you'd lent to an Icelandic bank. Well, too bad, you you, you made a bad loan and you took the loss. So then they protected their domestic depositors and they protected their home, um, home buyers on mortgages. They allowed interest rates to rise and inflation came along, but it, it disappeared. And within seven or eight years, Iceland was actually had recovered faster than any of the Eurozone countries that had pursued the type of policies advocated by Martin Wolf. So, and actually, the economy had liquidated, if you will, by moving away from finance towards. Uh, high tech and towards um, tourism. So the the economy had restructured itself and the government debt was down, households were better off and and then Iceland was sort of winning, you know, winning awards being the best place in Europe to live. So it's simply not true that you actually have to have high and sustained unemployment as the only alternative to these type of policies. It, it sort of, you know, you, you could say, okay, Iceland's a small country, very difficult to, for a large country to, to actually rearrange its debts after crisis. But, you know, it is an alternative.
0: Yeah, I mean, there is such a thing as a business cycle and we spent a very long time trying to pretend that you know that there isn't and that recessions can be indefinitely postponed. I'm afraid our time is up. Um, thank you very much indeed for joining. It's great talking to you. I recommend folks at home, please go out and get The Price of Time. Absolutely splendid book. Um, thanks for watching. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a uh, another great guest. Um, thank you in particular if you're an IEA donor. If you'd like to become an IEA donor, go to IA.org.uk slash donate. Take care and you'll hopefully see me next uh, next fortnight.